2014 will go down as the warmest year around the globe in recorded history. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. There's pretty good odds that if you're listening to this, you're already familiar with 2040. But if you're not, it's a documentary that came out last year, in 2019, about the world we could have by 2040. If we fully embraced and engaged with the challenge and opportunity of the climate crisis. Now, after extensive touring of the film and many live events, the director of 2040, Damon Gamow, is holding some webinars where he's chatting to some of the key movers and shakers and change makers in the climate change community. And to get things started, we're happy to be sharing his first webinar with you here, adapted for the Climactic Podcast. To give a little bit of context, we've added in some clips with some more information about what Damon and Zali are talking about. And wherever you're listening to this, if you just look below the player, you'll find in the show notes some links to some other climactic episodes we think you'll enjoy, such as interviews with the young people behind Climate Leaders, the group that helped campaign for Zali, and even an episode featuring Damon that was kindly shared to us from the podcast Regeneration. We hope you enjoy this. And it's a thrill to be able to work again with the 2040 team. So thank you, Damon, Kim, Anna C, and Anna K. Enjoy. Welcome. This is another of our Towards 2040 series. I'd like to just start by acknowledging that I am speaking to you from the lands of the Arakul people and the Bundjalung Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Uh, and their metaphor of custodianship of the land uh, could never be more important than right now. Very fortunate to be speaking tonight to Zali Stegel, who is the independent MP for the seat of Warringah in New South Wales. She's also the instigator of the Climate Change Act, which we'll talk about. She's uh, Australia's most uh, successful alpine skier. And uh, seeing how busy her schedule is, if there were um, Zoom frequent user points, she would already have access to the Zoom premium lounge. Zali, welcome. Thanks for your time. Damon, lovely to be here. Um, electronically <laughs> do you want to just uh, I just thought just by start by sharing you know what's any reflections for you on lockdown or how's it been for you how's the juggle been um you know this this time well, what's it meant for you in terms of reflections or where we're at look it's been quite interesting I've got to say we took action fairly early um, as an electoral office in terms of our staff and volunteers that would come into the office I had everyone working remotely very quickly. Clearly, we had to amend our plans around the climate change bill because that had been planned to be presented on the 23rd of March, which was essentially when lockdown commenced. It's been interesting. I'm the household, you know, two working adults uh, working from home, three uh, teenage kids, one doing his HSC. So we've definitely experienced all those challenges of having the kids at home, trying to balance, you know, not too much social media and electronics keeping track of the work as well as a lot of people very distressed in the electorate so really putting in place those systems you know to respond to emails make sure people are getting communication getting the information they need to be safe 
but also, you know, how to navigate all the information that was coming from the government. And a lot of constituents stuck overseas. So we had a lot of dealing with um, the home affairs and trying to get, you know, people back um, and safe. So it's been really busy. I know a lot of people have looked at we're not sitting in parliament as much, but it has been incredibly busy. I want to just dive straight in because I know we haven't got a lot of time and there's some already questions coming in. But obviously this is an incredible moment for us in terms of an opportunity to to rebuild post-corona. I think some of the decisions we make in the next six months will, will be felt for decades to come and I think a lot of people understand that. Some people might not be familiar with this, the commission that was set up by the Morrison government just to, I guess, deal with some of the logistics of right now but also look at some of the opportunities to where that stimulus spending might go as we emerge from this. And of the 15 members of that commission, about six of them have very strong ties to extractive industries, gas in particular. Uh, the chairman, Nev Power, of that commission is already sitting on a, uh, works at a company that are a gas exploration company. Uh, there's no one from the renewable energy sector on that commission. And I know you've just raised a few questions, and thank you for that, about the transparency of that commission, an unelected committee that is potentially going to be dealing with a lot of our public money, they've already become a magnet for lobby groups, I know that much. Can you just talk about what you're doing there and some of the questions that you've been asking? Yeah, look, I think what we do need to remember, there's no blueprint. I think a crisis like this, government and the Prime Minister had to move quickly. Uh, we were seeing, uh, you know, in March we had shortages of toilet paper, you had supply questions. So I think the genesis for the Coordination Commission started very much out of making sure we had good supply routes and there weren't any issues, especially for more remote and more exposed communities. So I can understand that that was maybe the beginning or the thinking behind that coordination uh, and how would we coordinate between states and lockdowns uh, and across industries, for example, and how do you create, for example, a COVID-safe workspace for those industries that needed to continue. And so, look, there are a lot of eminent, extremely uh, reputable people on the commission. And I don't have an issue with a commission per se because... In fact, in the Climate Change Bill, I want to see a Climate Change Commission established. And ironically, the criticism from a lot of the coalition was how can you have an unelected body advise government on policy? The irony that that's exactly what the coalition's done, I hope, means that we can put to bed those concerns and objections about the Climate Change Bill. Um, The concerns around the Coordination Commission though, is there was no consultation at the time of announcement and I don't understand that there was any uh, public sort of process in terms of what the skill base should be on the commission, who should be on it, whether it should actually be independent. And it was very much, a, a you know, I think they were captain's pick in terms of who was appointed. Now, it is heavily geared towards fossil fuels uh, or directors with fossil fuel experience uh, and backgrounds. Now, when I asked the Prime Minister uh, about that in question time last week in Parliament about, you know, how can the Australian people trust the decisions and what this Coordination Commission is doing in circumstances where we have no clear terms of reference, what's been put up on the website for the NCCC itself indicates that it has broad powers of advice, that it is going to seek all information, broad information to advise the government. Now, we have a Senate inquiry into the coronavirus response. 
the CEO, Mr Harris, appeared before that last week, again in Parliament, and indicated that even he was quite unsure as to all the roles and activities of the Commission. Uh, he's quote, he was quoted, he said it was opaque. He was very unclear about the conflicts of interest of not just the Commission, people on the Commission, but he indicated there are a number of, of advisors, or he described them as appendage people sitting, I guess, below the Coordination Commission with a role in subgroups. So my understanding from people I've spoken to, there is a manufacturing task force, there is a non-for-profit task force, uh, there are likely to be an energy task force. These task force have people on it. Now, he could, Mr Harris couldn't even tell the Senate inquiry who, you know, give a list of exactly who is there in an advisory role. Um, he was unclear that they were also subject to any kind of conflicts, um, you know, disclosure of conflicts of duty. And so it raises a lot of questions of exactly what is the role of this Coordination Commission? Yeah. What are its boundaries? What are the scopes of its duties? What powers does it have? Um, now, Mr Harris made it clear it has been lobbied. It is receiving uh, proposals. There's no direct public pathway for that. So clearly it's a if you know someone on it, you can present a, a submission, which is not how this should work. This is too no. vital a time. And it seems to be very arbitrary who they're talking to and who they're not. And I certainly have not heard from the chair of the commission that there is any focus that they are looking, for example, at an energy task force or manufacturing task force, but they are doing that with an overarching guideline of reducing yeah. emissions and decarbonising and focusing on lowest cost, best long-term impact for Australia. Now, I think that's concerning and I think legitimately we need to be asking questions. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate you doing that. I think the uh, one of the, the appendages you mentioned there is a man named Andrew Laversus and he's he's been talking about a sort of a trans-Australian uh, gas pipeline for a long time and, and I think it's pretty convenient that one of the first suggestions of this of this committee is for that uh, pipeline to happen a six billion dollar pipeline i mean if any this is the time not to be transporting gas across the country this is the time for interconnectors of renewable energy and i think maybe what people might not be familiar with because we often hear this narrative that gas is this sort of uh, transition fuel it's clean but some of the research now that's saying that even a 2.8 percent leak of that gas which can happen at extraction or distribution uh, can actually be more deleterious to the planet than coal because of the, the heating gas that methane is so really and we know bp have said there's about 3.2 percent of gas leak so it's already a problem do you want to talk maybe about this is an opportunity for for our country to really uh, change the way we've been doing things and not use these 20th century technologies, but really embrace what is out there now that are going to create more resilience, create huge jobs that we need, all these economic benefits that we could have out of Australia of being this renewable superpower, a land we could use. Do you want to talk about that more and, and how it relates, I guess, to your Climate Change Act and the opportunities that we should be embracing in this time instead of reverting to these old ways? Yeah, and look, we have to be realistic. Um, the Reserve Bank has made it clear if we want a chance to uh, avoid a deep recession, business as usual is not going to cut it. It's going to take reform and it's going to take something more than that. So that means there is an opportunity for the Prime Minister at this point. There's an opportunity to reset and be future focused. And I think this will be a real test of what his legacy will be, is will he 
be up to the task of the opportunity. Now, there's no doubt that the rebuild needs, uh, we need a mixture of energy sources in our rebuild. But what I think we need to be is technology agnostic, but focused on what will achieve and deliver the best outcomes. Now, our best long-term outcomes and our commitment, the Australian government's commitment, is to keep uh, global warming to under two degrees. Now, that requires net zero by 2050 at the latest. And we know from the science um, that we need to drastically reduce emissions from the course that we're currently on. So, it means there needs to be a reset and there needs to be a change um, and there should be a benchmark by which any decision is made or any investment of public money is made. It must tick more than one box and it must be productive towards that long-term goal um, of reducing our emissions. Uh, mm. We have to balance that budget. So uh, I'm very concerned that at the moment we're talking about projects like the, the $6 billion gas pipeline that has essentially been discredited as economically just not a viable project. So very concerning. And look, the minister's also constantly talking about a gas-led recovery. And again, that really goes against evidence. Uh, we've got AMO's ISP plan indicates gas as being a 1% to 2%. Uh, we have great potential in renewables. We have a focus on hydrogen, which is really important, but we need to be really clear that it is green hydrogen that we would be focused on because we need to, for keeping the price down, it needs to be a renewable fueled hydrogen. It really is important that we grasp the opportunity of where we're at. And I feel it so much also from the generation that's impacted. Uh, it's been a really interesting crisis in that the health crisis has overwhelmingly impacted the older generation. And it tends to be, it's not a rule, but generally a lot of the older generation is more resistant to change and to stronger action on, on reducing our emissions. So I do think there is a little bit of a, an interesting reset that needs to happen there as well because... Mm -hmm the cost of this rebuild, the stimulus, is going to fall on the shoulders of the younger generation. And they are the ones who have been the most impacted by job losses through this crisis, whose future is most impacted because um, it is, there's no doubt this is going to impact the economy for some time, and who will also be the generation to bear the cost of climate impacts if we do not change our course. So mm -hmm. I think there is a duty to a whole generation that must be front of mind in the decision-making at this point, mm -hmm. um, and, and it really can form part of that. So where does the climate change deal fit in? Hi, I'm Zali Stegel, Independent Member of Parliament for Warringah. On March 23, I will introduce a climate change bill to Parliament to help us protect our homes, our well-being, our economy and our environment from the changing climate. New Zealand, Germany, the UK, many countries have a Climate Change Act. It's the framework that brings down their emissions. We need one too. We are feeling the impacts of climate change. We need to protect our homes, our communities, our way of life. With the Climate Change Act, we will have a sensible plan to protect our jobs, the Australian economy and our environment. Then we will all prosper together. Let's say enough with party politics. Climate change is a matter of conscience. Join your voice to mine. Say yes at climateactnow.com.au. So where does the climate change deal fit in? Well, 
the climate change bill, you know, it, it is based on legislation that was passed in the UK in 2008. Um, it sets the long-term goal of net zero by 2050. Now, I know from many points of view we need to get there sooner, but we, I think, at the very least need to set that outer marker. We need to draw the line in the sand so that we have that goal and we are accelerating our work and our research and investment to get to that goal. Mm. It is widely accepted from many countries around the world. It's widely accepted by most of our private large corporations. They generally have those goals of net zero by 2050 and it's policy or legislation in all of our states. So I do think it's a strange situation to have our energy reduction minister, the outlier, you know, out completely on his own in terms of not accepting that net zero by 2050 is a must of our benchmark that we need to set ourselves by. Mm. Uh, so that's where the climate change bill, I think, is even more relevant now than ever in terms of what is the benchmark by which we need to measure the actions we take with the economy, with the rebuild out of this crisis and we need to make sure we get bang for buck. We can't have ideological investment so that does not have that long-term return and the long-term return means for it to attract private investment, uh, it simply has to be in a lower emission direction. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I was reading through the bill today and um, it feels quite uh, applicable, but I, th- I think some of the countries that have probably done the best during this COVID crisis have been the ones that have sort of set politics aside and ideology. They've let the data and the, and the science really come forward. They've made decisions on that on that science. They've formed committees around that. They've communicated very clearly. Do you think there'll be learnings from that here? I mean, I think about um, the opportunity we have to do that around climate and whatnot, and I noticed in your bill that you even had a sort of a an annual risk assessment of seeing where we're at. Are there things that need to be done? And this is orchestrated by a committee based on the data. Can you talk more to that in terms of what are the learnings from COVID, do you think, in terms of how we've made decisions like that to, to climate change? There's no doubt that, um, and I think this is this is going to be a test of the Prime Minister's character in that he has been willing to accept the science and medical advice on this crisis and he has acted decisively and we have done really well and he should be, you know, congratulated for that, that we have avoided a health crisis. We are doing so well compared to the rest of the world. But I think it's it's a partnership between the government that's taken strong action and the Australian people who have been willing to, to do it because there's been a real incursion into rights, you know, individual rights, and we've accepted that for the greater good. Now, I think that shows, uh, and also early action is decisive. Now, we know on climate and on emission reduction, it will be cheaper and more effective to act early uh, and it will minimise the cost down the road. So I sincerely hope that there is a maturity in the government to actually look at the outcome of the actions that they've taken on this crisis and show a maturity of being able to embrace the same approach on the biggest risk we face, being climate. The budget we most need to balance is our emissions budget. And at the moment, we are so deeply in the red, it's scary. So I, I really hope for that, that there's that opportunity to accept that it's been shown to work in our response to this crisis. We need to put it into effect 
on the other crisis. Now, before the lockdown, I asked the Prime Minister in Parliament, um, what was the cost of not achieving the Paris target, you know, of not staying below two degrees of warming? Um, And he had no answer because the cost is unimaginable. And it's not just a health and environment cost, it's actually an economic cost. The the impact to the economy will be substantial far, far greater. We're starting to get those numbers, like University of Melbourne have done that study, but that's a really important point that we need to focus on because it is the biggest risk ahead to the economy. So a big part of the climate change bill is once we lock in that net zero, that long-term target, we have five-year emission reduction budgets so that we can assess how we get there. And that's across every sector. You know, we have some sectors will be easier to achieve than others, like energy. Transport will not be so hard. Agriculture will be harder. Industry, manufacturing, harder as well. But a lot of those are interlinked. And there's a lot of people putting a lot of work into coming up with plans. Uh, Climate Works, for example, recently put out a, a report that shows how we can get there across all sectors. So if there's nothing we've learned from 2020, I mean, 2020 has been a big year. Um, With the bushfires, as we've seen, we're exposed. There is, you know, the risk management is a huge part of how we need to proceed into the future. Um, And that requires regular assessment. And I think it requires independent assessment so that the public can have confidence. Just as we've seen uh, the premiers of all our states and the Prime Minister stand next to the chief medical officer to give us the political decision and then the medical officer gives us the medical update and the reasoning, I think it's really important that we have that partnership between the science and the politicians or the leaders in explaining why certain steps are necessary. And I think that we can progress out of the climate wars that Australia's had for 10 years into a much more, you know, I think there needs to be bipartisanship on where our future is. There just isn't room for the kind of divisive uh, oppositional politics that we've seen for so long. You know, I feel often, as I'm sure you do, I feel quite hopeful when I see what the states are doing in terms of their own reductions and, and their energy. And, and you think of South Australia, it'll probably be 100% renewable before uh, 2030, the way they're going, what WA are doing, what Tasmania are doing, um, Victoria, even Queensland are starting to do these things. So, you know, can you delineate there between how important is it to actually have a, a federal national target of 2050 when the states are sort of going on their own and, and cranking and really getting things done, what is the significance of having this sort of united plan? Is it about this sort of bipartisanship? Is that is that the sort of the, the more important element here of, the, of a collective vision and goal? One of the things I am calling for, is, and I will be uh, incorporating into the bill, that I think the National Cabinet needs to continue, um, and I think it, we need a National Cabinet involvement when it comes to our response to climate change and a national energy policy and emission reduction. All the states are far in front of the Commonwealth Government as far as the steps they're taking and being proactive, uh, which is really good. And I think uh, the National Cabinet is a way in which I think it's really it would be really important that the Prime Minister actually have to deal with and acknowledge where the states and the commitments the states have made. Um, so I definitely want to see a continuation of the National Cabinet. I think it's been proven to be effective in a crisis, in handling the differences of each state, that there it doesn't stifle, you know, it doesn't diminish the voice of each state, but it allows for a coordinated response, which 
is so important on an issue like our emission reduction and climate change impacts. In terms of do we still need leadership? Well, we do because there are just as in our response to the crisis, it was necessary to lock down um, our international borders and have quarantine. Um, you know, states could make decisions within their state boundaries, but we needed an overall policy and approach as well. So I do believe it's important. We need that leadership. And I know the private sector is calling for that policy certainty, broken with, you know, from BCA to AIG to the superannuation groups to multiple sectors. And they all overwhelmingly want policy certainty and stability. You know, the lack of a national energy policy makes it very difficult. At a time like this where we want to be capturing as much private investment as possible to stimulate the economy, create, you know, really boost industries and manufacturing. We have so many opportunities, you know, green steel, um, green aluminium, you know, there are so many opportunities, but we do need private sector investment and Mm. we will miss out on that investment if we don't have policy certainty. And as you said, there's an opportunity. I mean, I guess the great fear is, and probably uh, the Prime Minister's biggest decision is what to do with the, when, when the JobKeeper sort of allowances, uh, when he pulls that away, because where are these people going to go in terms of jobs? And what an opportunity to actually stimulate and create some wonderful jobs that would actually build us a better future, whether it's large projects around the rail or, or renewables or the green steel, whatever it might be, that there's, we're going to need more jobs. And I think that's going to be a pivotal moment for him. I just wanted to ask you again about, I've noticed like Trump today announced that, um, you know, they were going to sort of strip any regulation uh, while the economy builds, which has been a huge blow for sort of any environmental protection in the US. And I've noticed even here that under the sort of, while everyone's focused on COVID, that a few things have snuck through. I know the Minerals Council have been very busy, that the coal mine expansion under the Sydney has been approved. Are there anything else that, that you're sort of cognizant of that, We need to be careful about what's going on behind the scenes, uh, especially in terms of environment. This reservoir is in one of five main water catchments in Greater Sydney, supplying drinking water to millions of people. Soon, it will also be home to coal mining. Peabody Energy has been allowed to extend its metropolitan mine underneath the Warrenora Reservoir. Many people in the community are divided about the economic benefits of coal and its impact on climate change. Some say it's time for serious decisions to be made on jobs, fossil fuels and the environment. Nicola Gage, Al Jazeera, Sydney. Yeah, there's been this sort of uh, narrative of to boost the economy, we need to, you know, cut the green tape or cut down regulation. Now, all you're going to achieve with that is there's going to be short-term bad decisions made and bad projects approved that will have a long-term cost to the Australian people. And I don't think that's acceptable. So that will be short-term greed for a few at the expense of many. So I definitely don't agree with that. I think we have an opportunity to for a planned recovery and that's where I think there, there really is, it's important. So, look, there is the review uh, of the EPBC Act as well. You know, there's a number of areas where, yes, I can see there is going to be a challenge and attempts at winding back environmental protections 
And I just don't see how that can, um, we cannot afford to do that in the wake of the bushfires. I mean, keep in mind, we still have the Royal Inquiry into the impacts of the bushfires. A lot of our regions are not just reeling from the lockdown of the virus, but they were already decimated by the bushfires. So we need to be very careful about winding back environmental protections and what the benefit is. I think there is a lot more to be done. Minister Andrews announced today, talked a lot about, for example, focusing on manufacturing of batteries, for example, locally. And I know uh, ARENA and the CEFC are focused on increasing our storage capacities, so batteries to back up the renewables, which is really important. I think there's huge opportunity there. Many would have read Ross Garneau's book, We Have the capacity to be an energy superpower you know we need to harness that potential uh, mm. and, and it's certainly not going to be by snapping back to fossil fuels so mm. yes that, those little things that slip under the radar are really concerning um, there is some legislation due to come for the parliament in relation to the grid reliability and these attempts or foreshadowed amendments to the mandate of the CFC are concerning. We had the King Review released yesterday. Again, it was a cherry-picked body, a group of individuals did the review, heavily fossil fuel sort of experienced. It was a circumventing from using the Climate Change Authority who was doing its own review at the same time. So there's a real question of why the Energy Minister's gone down that path. And the recommendations of broadening the focus of the CFC and ARENA to include projects like gas or clean coal is concerning. And, and again, today there was a lot of conversation again around CCS. Now, it, that's it's like having a 10-year déjà vu. Uh, to have that conversation, um, it's just not bang for buck and the Australian no. economy cannot afford this kind of ideological no. investment. We need no. effective investment. So would you say, I mean, in, in your short time in Parliament now, I mean, you know, it seems what's so obvious now in our country is this, you know, whether it's the, the this concentrated media landscape that we have really, you know, and I'm interested in storytelling, obviously, that we have these gatekeepers of a narrative in this country you know, we didn't have any real lobbyists in the 80s in our country. We now have, you know, somewhere around 5,000 lobbyists. It feels our parliament has really been hijacked from the outside and is really blocking a lot of the things that just should be happening and are happening in other parts of the world. What's your take on that in terms of your experience so far and, and, and just your <laughs> observations from, from the inner sanctum? I don't think I get to see the inner sanctum just yet. But, um, look, it's been interesting. I, I am concerned at the disconnect between conversations you can have with individual MPs as to what their beliefs are and focus, mm -hmm. um, but yet uh, the party politics of it. But at the end of the day, uh, especially, I mean, Labor has a different caucus, but the coalition is supposed to be the party of the free vote, and yet... Um, MPs will toe the party line essentially. Now I assume within their party room they have a process of deciding the decisions uh, and the direction they're going to go on on policies but I find there's a really big disconnect in the individuals may say they believe in and yet their actions do not match those beliefs. Yeah. So I think there's a real question of electorates holding those individuals to account. Are MPs there to represent a party or represent an electorate? Uh, and yeah. that needs to be debated, you know. But, yeah, the, the lobbyists um, and those influences are really um, concerning. Uh, I think 
that we have got a concentrated media in Australia. It's really important we maintain freedom of the press, important to have a strong national broadcaster and the ABC. They're really important issues to make sure people are informed. The power of lobby groups is interesting. You know, it is concerning. We need more transparency around donations and we have very little legislation around that. There's a clear double standard in how, for example, as an independent, the disclosure I need to provide compared to what a party provides, vastly different. We still don't have any truth in political advertising laws um, and we don't have a national uh, integrity commission. So there's a number of issues we're pushing for to try and improve that level of accountability by the government um, and to be in a position to scrutinise the decisions that are being made, to make sure that they are, you know, that they, they pass the smell test, that they are illegitimate, yeah. everything is good. So I think it's, yeah, yeah. it's obvious I think that people, that, you know, people have lost faith, I think, in, in politics, understandably, and especially I think if I talked to a lot of the younger generation who really struggle to relate or understand or connect with, with democracy, which is which is a great challenge. You know, do you think the future might be, will you see more independence running like you are? Are we going to see governments form like in Finland where it's, it's a coalition of, of five independents, early 30s women, I might add? Um, is that kind of <laughs> going to break, break this, sort of, um, this sort of duality we've been stuck in for too long that just really isn't getting us to the places we need to go? What, what are your thoughts on that, again, from being inside? Yeah, look, I think that would be much better for our democracy and much better for the long-term interest of Australia. The crossbench is a great place, so I think more more members of the crossbench would be good to challenge uh, the debate and make sure that the parliament is a place of debate, not just two teams sort of, you know, slanging at each other and not really looking for positive outcomes. Where I'm also concerned is the coalition, I think, is really held to ransom by its junior partner. Uh, I think the nationals are really quite unstable. That creates a situation of a minority having a disproportionately large impact on the stability of government um, and that they have proven themselves to be quite prepared to wreck the joint and, and that is really damaging and not in the best interest um, of of democracy in our country. So I always find, you know, I appreciate that we have you know, that you have all opinions and that's the beauty of democracy is that you have a lot of different views. But I'm concerned when certain uh, more extreme views uh, do not hesitate to speak extremely loudly and we don't hear the counterparts. So from within the coalition, we hear a lot of the denier voices when it comes to climate. We don't hear strong the, the strong other voices and we don't see strong speaking up for good legislation or good amendments. I think at the last election we had a number of calling themselves the modern liberals. Mm. Now, where are they when it comes to standing up for the modern values and good legislation or good amendments? Mm. What can young people do or what are all the people? Look, you have to take control. This is democracy. Your vote counts. Being disillusioned with it or accepting it as being a broken system is not good enough. You wouldn't accept that in your personal life for something that really impacts you and I don't think it's okay to accept that as far as our politics. Now, that was my situation. I had to find myself a bit over a year ago in terms of I was unhappy with the status quo but 
There's no point on being an armchair critic and complaining if you're not prepared to do something about it. Now, for me, it meant putting it on the line and putting myself up as a candidate. But for over 1,400 people in Moringa, it was come and be a volunteer and support the campaign and be a voice for change. Now, that is the only way an independent can get up is by having the support of their community. You, you don't. You just have to be, it has to be local and it has to be support of grassroots community. So we all have that potential, everyone, you know. So if you are dissatisfied with the status quo, you have to get involved to change it. Great. And can you talk about, because a lot of people, you know, say, you know, will it make a difference if I write to my MP? Do they actually going to read that letter? Do, is my harassing all for nothing? Can you give people a kernel of hope to say, yes, their, their penetrating emails are frustrating. <laughs> they do accumulate and people should be on the front foot with that stuff. There's no doubt about it that electoral officers are, are very busy dealing with emails. I guess um, does have an impact. But if it's all it is is an, is an email with no follow-up, I think it's asking for a meeting. But letting people know within your community if your local MP is not willing to give you a meeting or is not willing to give mm-hmm. you an answer right. uh, or if all you're getting is a rope answer but nothing really engaging on the issue. You know, is that an answer you'd be prepared to accept on an, on something else that was maybe more personal? Then why are you accepting it from your representative? Um, I think you have to challenge that. But also, as much as we have a media monopoly, you know, a strong sort of sort of concentrated media in Australia, we are in a day and age where we have so many other means of communication now. For me in the campaign, it was clear I needed to be able to get my message and show who I was to Warringah um, mm. to get people on board to trust me, to represent them. Now, clearly through social medias, we have so many platforms and these are not platforms controlled by a limited few. These are available to you. So I think there is a way of taking back control of that narrative and that process, but you have to be prepared to work hard yeah. at it. Yeah. Um, so, yes, email your MP, which is why for the Climate Bill we have the climateactnow.com.au which, to help you do that, facilitate that. But follow up. If you're part of a tennis club or a PNC group, um, if you have a local forum for your area, um, whatever your group, if you don't have one, Start one. Start your kitchen table conversation. Get your community engaged on the issues. And I, I'd imagine that the, uh, that follow-up email, if you then say, look, there's 35 of us from our group that want to come in and meet with you, that's going to be far more powerful than just a generic sort of petition that you're sending in. So it does take more work. Yeah, that, that's good to hear. Zaya, I know we haven't got a lot of time. But I'm just gonna, there's a few questions that have come through, so I might just um, ask you some of those. Um, so one of the questions has come through from Adam Clark, who says, "What is your what's the timeline to bring the Climate Act uh, to the House now, um, given everything that's happened with COVID?" Yeah, look, a lot of people asking me that question. Um, uh, look, I've made a few amendments to the bill to ensure that I take into account the feedback I've had from bodies, but also some of the other MPs that I've talked to. And then I also want to make sure I go through a consultation process because it's really important that this is up to date with the current situation of where we're at. Uh, but I also have a lot of people who want to be able to come to Canberra, so I can't do it while there's a period of lockdown. So it will be mid to end of this year. It's definitely going to be 2020. Don't you worry about that. I just want to give time to make sure 
there's the right level of consultation and the right opportunity to address the challenges that we're facing. The irony is that the crisis and the lockdown has created the change in behaviour that is so hard to achieve in normal times. Um, mm-hmm. So I would encourage everyone to, you know, grasp onto that. Like I know, Damien, you've talked a lot about changing behaviour, you know, changing our use of our cars and transport and, you know, can we have more modern work practices, more flexible, more work from home? There's been a lot of things we've changed and adjusted in this crisis that we can mm-hmm. take forward. Predictions are our emissions are going to drop about 8% this year and that's kind of the figure. We've got to drop them by 7% every year to 2030 if we're going to meet our Paris goal. So it's a good indication of what we should be doing and, and this is what happens when the whole system shuts down. We've got to do more of this. Yeah, but, but unfortunately the concern is we've had a reduction of emissions but mm. there is a real concern that there will be a peak, a, a, a steeper rise in emissions yeah. post-lockdown because yeah. of, for example, an increased use of private vehicles instead of public transport, loosening of regulations around manufacturing. So there is a risk of a long-term negative impact right. if we don't, if we're not watchful. Yeah, I think the emissions post-GFC went up 5%, even yeah. though they dropped 1% and everyone got excited. They just flew back up very quickly. Another question's come in here. How could federal money drive down carbon fund transitional employment and reboot the fire-ravaged towns? So I guess it's sort of tying in the momentum post-bushfires with COVID. Uh, how do we sort of, is there an opportunity to tie those together? Yeah, well, I think uh, th- there's definitely, there's rebuilding going on. So that re- rebuilding brings opportunity, but we need to rebuild smart. And if there is going to be regional investment, it should be in areas that have as a focus the decarbonisation. I mean, there's a lot of talk around from a manufacturing point of view, really looking at Uh, green steel, green aluminium, mentioned before battery production. Um, There's clearly a lot of regional communities are needing a huge amount of assistance. I mean, we saw the impact of loss of power during the bushfires was quite significant. There's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be rebuilt. Now, do you rebuild the same or do you rebuild better? Clearly, by rebuilding better, you create local jobs. Um, I I would argue we need to rebuild with renewables uh, if it comes from an energy energy supply point of view um, and and that achieves you know so the money in the rebuild is spent on lower emission um, technology so I think there's a lot of potential there I think transport's an interesting one you know we've had a lot of conversation around our airlines and we need airline travel in Australia we're a vast continent but it does open the question of also investment I think in in our rail and especially a high-speed rail so we have a lot of conversation about accelerating infrastructure projects and roads is what Mm -hmm. the government's generally spoken about but we know from a long-term point of view we actually need a better rail network we have a quite Mm. old rail network that needs upgrading so that would be something that can create jobs and increase transport capacity very quickly um, Mm. especially along the east coast and then looking at modernizing our transport and uh, you know look the government was due to release its road technology roadmap prior to the crisis i think it's more relevant than ever that we know what are the technologies it believes will achieve the Paris Agreement target of reducing our emissions. And let's make sure that our stimulus spend is actually done consistent to that. There's a lot of ways in which this can all work together. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting seeing what other some other countries are doing that I guess you could argue might have been quite radical even six months ago. I, mean, I think Spain are, are, are going to implement a universal basic income. They've actually just released, I think, their announcement today to, to no more expansion of, of any sort of fossil fuel. Uh, we've seen Amsterdam are even going to implement Kate Raworth's donut economics as they rebuild, rebuild from corona. But just get the sense here, I mean, obviously we've got a conservative government in, in place, but we just aren't thinking in those radical ways. It feels like we're really sort of just going to go back or double down on the system we had and, and potentially waste this really beautiful opportunity. Do you think that there's still reasons for hope outside the sort of the national decisions? Do you think there are exciting opportunities that will emerge from this? Yeah, look, I think if there's one thing the government's been clear is it said, look, there's so much of the stimulus is going to come from public funding, from Commonwealth money, but it wants the private sector to come on board as well. It needs the private sector to invest. Now, much of the private sector is absolutely committed to uh, decarbonising, to low emission technologies. Uh, you know, large corporations, we see announcements all the time of needing to get to that net zero. I mean, during the crisis, we saw AGL is really stuck between a rock and a hard place between being punished by shareholders that it is not moving quickly enough in its reducing its emissions and decarbonising and moving away. But yet the government is not releasing the plan on Liddell and not permitting timely and transition. So large corporates are, you know, they are under pressure from their employees that want to have good corporate policy. Their shareholders certainly want to know that uh, that there isn't, uh, you know, the exposure to climate risk is being addressed. Uh, the growth and acceptance of the TCFD um, is really interesting in where that what's that that's doing. So and then there's liability for a lot of companies. So I think the private sector is miles ahead of the government. I think yeah. the government is going to have a rude shock if it wants to put public money in projects that are simply uncommercial. It's simply not going to attract the private funding, and that's just that's a reality. So yes, there's plenty to be hopeful about. Uh, I think there's already been some really interesting development and decisions. The fact that other countries are leading the way, I am hopeful. I mean, the IMF came out today saying, again, the stimulus and the rebuilds need to be low emission technologies. There's a lot of hope. I think the world can't afford to waste money on old technologies, on uncommercial, unviable. We knew they were already on track to being stranded stranded mm. technologies i think that's been accelerated by the crisis yeah. uh, so uh, you know i don't think there's a choice no and i think too that what it's really laid bare not only the fragility of the system and, and the flaws in it but also i think what we really do value and, and what's been important this moment has been you know the, the doctors and the nurses food teachers these things that we've often undervalued some of them do you think there's a that, that we won't go back in a sense that they'll, they'll be valued as we move forward and we're going to have more pandemics, we're going to have more climate shocks. Do you think that we're going to need to build in something more robust to the system and have a safety net and a protection for people? Is that on the agenda for discussion as we emerge, do you think? Oh, look, it will be interesting. I mean, uh, you know, we certainly saw the Adam Band and the Greens come out with their plan. Um, I think I don't know that I would agree that we're going to have a complete, you know, change to our social fabric and, and everything. But I think we have come to appreciate that there's certainly certain uh, industries and sectors that we need to better value. Um, and when it comes to job security or where the opportunities in the future are, clearly 
there are certain sectors that are going to need to be, you know, that the, the youth will see as being much better employment prospects in areas to go in. So that will create demand as well. Um, mm. and, and demand is definitely, you know, from a nursing point of view, we've seen in those frontline staff essential. We've seen the breakdown of supply lines uh, in terms of manufacturing and what are essential products that we need to really make sure we have in Australia. Also diversifying our maybe trading partners and supply lines. I think we've been, you know, we've really shown that there are weaknesses there um, and that we need to make sure that is a little bit more uh, secure. So I think there's going to be some really interesting opportunities there. And it is about how do we look to the future and and mm-hmm. I think we just have to make sure it's sound for the future but look mm-hmm. over the bushfires in the summer we had our first climate refugees you know Malakuta mm-hmm. a whole community have evacuating from the beach that you know it was our way of life that we I think a lot of people take for granted that we live in an amazing country we take for granted a right to clean air I think I, well, I hope there is a deep reset so what do we value and what do we prioritise? Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, and uh, stay tuned. We'll keep you posted and we'll send some more information out about Zali's Climate Act and when it will be uh, pushed into the parliament. So get behind it and support. Get your group together and harass your MP. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the 2040 team for letting us share this adaptation of their ongoing webinars with you. You can find out more about the Climate Act at climateactnow.com.au and find a link to it, the webinar video, and more from the 2040 team in the show notes. So if you're also feeling inspired to take action, join me. Let's call our local MP, get a conversation about the Climate Act happening in our local community groups. And now we're starting to venture out of our homes. How about we post up flyers, which you can find on the website around our local area as well. The steps we take now will determine what kind of world we'll have when we reach 2040. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. Collective.